because in the dream, when I sat down to the first piano and there were keys missing, but I don't know how to play the piano. And in the dream, I said, God, I don't know how to play. And I heard his voice and it was King James. <laughs> Seriously, it was, but it was just because he knew he could relate to me. He said, thou shalt play. And, and I didn't know what the anointing was, but man, it hit me. It's, it's this dream and I'm playing. I mean, I'm playing. Well, in the second dream, I was in a different, looked like a high school auditorium. Here was the, here was the uh, upright piano with all the keys. I sat down and I said, God, I don't know how to play. And he said, thou shalt play. And I felt it again and I started playing. Well, then I'm standing before this beautiful, long, black, grand piano. And I knew I couldn't play, but I knew he'd help me. And so I didn't say, Lord, I cannot play. And he didn't have to say, thou shalt play. I knew if I touched the keys, it would be okay. Welcome to the Almost Apostolic Podcast. I'm your host, Anissa, and this podcast is designed to share the backstories and testimonies of beautiful ministry-minded people. I hope you laugh, and I hope you learn that we are all striving for perfection in an imperfect world as people of faith. So join me every other week as I interview a few familiar folks and hopefully some you may not know. Today in the Almost Apostolic Studio, I have one of my top five favorite bishops of all time. I cannot believe this is actually happening, coming to fruition right now. Bishop Larry Booker, how are you today? I'm very good, and it's good to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I don't really want to go deep into an introduction because I want to start from the very beginning and kind of take a journey to where you are now. So I say Rialto, California, but where does your story begin? Well, um, the Larry Booker story, is, as folks know Larry Booker now, really started it when I was 19, which uh, was about was over 50 years ago. And um, the tiny backdrop of that is that I came out of the, uh, the hippie genre, um, drugs, big time, drink, etc. cetera. Um, but there were two types of hippies in those days. And there were those that did not bathe and lived in the mountains. There were those that thought they were hippies and lived in cities and took baths showers so i was the i was the latter oh, okay. but uh, drugs etc and i came to god night at 19 in, uh, raised in colorado but i came to god in oklahoma okay so you mentioned a life bound by drugs and alcohol in your early years was that a generational habit or something that you picked up well i really tend to believe it was both i would have thought it was just totally picked up beginning in the first part of my ninth grade year. However, uh, I came to find out um, when I got busted in my high school year, I never knew anything about my real father, but an aunt, an irate aunt, uh, was in my face and said, you are just like your father. You walk like him, you talk like him, you drink like him, you fight like him. You and found out later, years later, my dad died at 46. He was drinking about a quarter of whiskey a day. So I, 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 it, it stumbled onto me, I stumbled onto it, but there were probably, there were some generational pulls there, yeah, yeah. So what was your mind frame right before you came to know Christ? Was it around that time, those teenage years, or was it sometime after? Uh, no, I, I came to God when I was 19, but I will say that God dealt with me seriously uh, off and on through the years. Even from the time when I was around five, I had a dream that uh, terrified me. And then it actually happened in my ninth grade year. And it was, uh, in the, I didn't know what it was happening in the dream, but I, I freaked out on, 
on a drug really bad, and it was the dream. And um, at the time I had the dream, my name is Larry Macbeth. My uh, mother married Arthur Booker when I was in the fourth grade. He adopted me, and my name became Larry Booker instead of Larry Macbeth. And so in the dream, I was called Booker. And so, um, and there were just times God, I, I would, um, I was the uh, quote unquote life of the party, um, whatever you want to, however you want to throw them under that rug. But uh, what my friends did not know is I was not happy in many regards. And I really, uh, I didn't want to be a bad person, but I was. And there were times, plural, plural times, at least three that I come to my mind and I remember exactly where I was in my house. But I would get on my knees, bury my head between my knees during those teenage years. And uh, my thought was my a whole <laughs> theological upbringing was nil. But I just figured in life, if you did more evil than good, you were going to hell. And if you did more good than evil, you were going to heaven. That's technically Zoroastrianism now that I find out. But I, I would bury my head and I meant every word I was about to say to the point I was scared. I really was terrified. And I said, God, if in my life I'm going to end up doing more evil than good, and boy, I would gulp, I'd say, then I want you to kill me right now. And I would freeze up, and I'd feel sorry for my parents come home with their home destroyed, things of that nature. And it didn't happen, so I'd get up and think, well, maybe there's hope for me, and then I'd go back doing what I always did. So there were just, there were times, and um, this is not a plug for a book, I promise you. <laughs> But there's a lot to the story, and I did write a book called Journey of a Lifetime, and I gave a lot of the details there. And um, yeah, it was, at any rate, when I was 19, I repented on New Year's Eve. And um, in 1972, thoroughly repented, I mean, to the bone. And, and I moved back from Denver to Pueblo, back to my hometown anonymously through my probation officer, somebody began to pay my way through college, which was mind-boggling, since I had a D-minus average in high school. And I graduated with one-half credit to my good, so I was pretty pitiful. When I, uh, when I went to go see my probation officer, he said, there's somebody anonymously in this town that wants to pay your tuition, they'll pay it. Uh, all fees, book fees, and dorm fees, if you need them, they'll give you a cafeteria credit card. You just need to not flunk, go to college. Found out later it was a doctor, it was one of the most renowned doctors, and actually the most renowned doctor. And I used to date his daughter, and uh, I guess he thought if I might end up being a son-in-law, he didn't want a total loser. Right. So, I guess, anyway, so I started going to college, that's when I met the truth. I was praying every night, reading my Bible, didn't understand it, but I read it. And um, I got introduced to the truth. And when I did, I ran from it. And uh, then I backslid from my repentance. And it's in the book. But I will say this, um, the bottom line was, I went to my bedside one night, I'd been in Denver and uh, the one thing I had never done, and it's in the book why I had never done it, but I had never shot up anything in my arms. It was the only promise I'd made to God that I hadn't broken. I honestly thought it was the reason he kept me alive so many times. But that night, um, I did. I had a friend of mine that had the drugs. He shot me up after all those years, and I was not affected. So I woke him up from his stupor and I made him shoot me up again. And he was crying because he'd killed a friend in Vietnam doing that same thing. And it did not affect me. 
So I just thought I was a walking dead man. And I went home that night in Pueblo and I got by my bed. I was broken and shattered. And I said, God, if you will get me out of here, I will do anything, anything in the world for you. And then I uh, was left at night, I passed out. But that night in Oklahoma, a friend of mine who had been baptized in Jesus' name, received the Holy Ghost, he was praying for me. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Arise, go get Larry. He's ready now. And he drove with a friend of his all night long. And my mother woke me up that next morning and I got on the phone. First words out of my mouth is, Larry, can I go home with you? And he said, That's why I came. So, bottom line, I ended up in Oklahoma and I met the truth and I ran from it, but I was repentant. And I ran right into their arms in Bartlesville, Oklahoma that night. It was October, excuse me, April 2nd, 1972. I repented, I wept and sobbed for literally, literally an hour and a half. And then they baptized me in a cow pond. It was a home missions church. When they took me into the water, I saw a bright, bright, bright light. And I came out of the water and I would have got the Holy Ghost right then, but I remembered how bad I was, <laughs> but five nights later, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so I guess the phrase here is the rest is history. Yeah. yeah. So. Did you find yourself weaning like off of that lifestyle or was it like an absolute immediate change? I'm one of the very fortunate ones that I had no withdrawals. I, believe it or not, I did have one withdrawal. I missed, I was born and raised in Colorado. We used to live in the Rocky Mountains. I could, all, wherever I lived, I always saw the Rocky Mountains. We were up there all the time. The only withdrawal I had was the mountains. I'm in Oklahoma and it's, it, was, it was flat land basically yeah. where I was. And uh, nothing like the Rockies. That's the only thing I missed. No problem with uh, drugs, drink. Uh, it, it, by the mercies of God, I'm one of the fortunate ones. I mean, that was gone. Wow. Yeah. So from that point, how much time passed before you felt the call to preach? Well, um, this is a, that's a very, very good question. My pastor, before the month of April was over, I mean, when I came to God, my hair was down to the middle of my chest or lower. Um, my pants was a conglomeration of patches sewed together. When I went into the church, my shirt was unbuttoned. I prayed God I had on a t-shirt. I don't remember. I know I didn't have socks on and I don't think I had shoes. He thinks I might have had sandals on. Um, anyway, uh, God, it took me several haircuts to get my hair right. I just was, I thought I thought three inches was a big deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, be that as it may, before the month was over, he asked me to preach my first sermon. Of course, it was a home mission church. There were 18 people. When I got there, I became number 19. But he saw something. And so my first time ever, I basically gave my testimony. And, uh, and then a month later, he asked me to speak again. And when, and I remember the first message I ever actually preached was out of uh, the unjust steward of Luke 16. And bear with me as I tell you this, I preached the message and the people that were there, they just went on and on. Oh my goodness, that was awesome. Well, what they didn't know is I had preached that message three times from start to finish to that empty auditorium. Uh, before that service ever came. I mean, I worked my way through it to where it was, I could have quoted it in my sleep. But uh, so, but however, when I had repented and I was in Pueblo, and when I repented, I mean, I repented of, there was no smoking, drinking, cussing, which was a big deal because my mouth was horrible. I had really 
I mean, I had really repented. I mean, I had repented to the point we had a television in every room in our house. I quit watching television. I got convicted one day watching television, and, and that was it. I didn't have a church, pastor, anything. So I had really, really repented. And I had it, and, and there were times God would try to fill me with the Holy Ghost. I didn't know what it was, but He would come on me, and I'd, I'd, I, 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 I started getting stammering lips. I know now, but it scared me, and I crawl under the covers. I had a little cross to glow in the dark and had an old Bible that fell to pieces, put the Bible on my chest. And literally, I would say, Jesus, I, I, I don't know what you're trying to do, but we're going to have to do this some other time. <laughs> so it was scary. Well, in those days, I had a dream. I won't go into it, but in, well, I will say this, in this dream, there was three segments of it. I was playing three pianos. The first one was old, keys were missing, dry rotted. The second one was an upright piano. All the keys were there, upright. And I could tell you about the settings of it, but the third one was a grand piano, grand operatic piano. And um, there's a whole lot more to that dream. But, and I woke up and I knew the dream was from God and I didn't know what it meant. So in, uh, that's about two months later, and two months after being in church, maybe three, I was talking to my pastor and I said, there's a dream that really haunts me that I had when I was repentant, etc." So I know exactly where we're sitting outside of his house. And while I told him the dream, I got the interpretation. And I'm sitting there shocked. And he said, I can tell you the interpretation of the dream. And I said, okay. What is it? And, he, and God had just given it to me. And he said, you are going to pastor three churches in your lifetime. And the first piano is the first church that you will pastor. There will be keys missing, etc. The second pastor, a pastor, all the keys will be there. And it'll be a nice piano. Great, but it won't be the third. And the third piano turned out to be Rialto. And here we are by the sweet, unbelievable mercies of God, wow. which today my son's pastoring that church and he's doing better than I did. So here we go. So how much time passed between that dream and your actual burden to pastor? Well, um, as I was, um, you know, he'd asked me to preach and I'd preach twice. And uh, we talked about that. There was a service where I was, I was sitting in the service. I was very down. It was a very down moment. Um, I'd had a, the boy that had gone to Pueblo to get me. Um, he wasn't doing so good right there. And he actually, my parents had come to see me and he ridiculed me in front of my parents for going to church so much. And that night they were leaving the next day and they couldn't believe I was going to church that night. And I said, uh, you know what I was before I came to God? I, I, the only thing that could help me is God and his church. So I'm sorry. And that's when my buddy took up and really started giving me a hard time from my parents. So I'm sitting in the church service. I'm feeling so bad. My pastor's preaching. I had my Bible open on my lap. And I it was, I know I was in the Psalms, but I don't know where. And all of a sudden, in the presence of God came on me. And the only way I can describe it, it felt like I was in slow motion, diving off into the waters of that word. I felt myself submerging into that Bible. And it was so rich and powerful. And I began to weep because I knew that moment my life was to be spent preaching and teaching that word. That was the total closure. I almost, uh, if I, we were there four and a half years. I married my wife. I got in church in April. I married my wife on January 20th of 73. And uh, so we were there like four and a half, four years or so. Half. And then I evangelized almost a year. 
but I always knew I was a pastor. I just, I always knew it. So then we took the first church in Miami, Oklahoma. I was there four years to the day. Didn't plan it that way, but it was. Evangelized three years, most of that in California. And, um, and I remember where we were, we were holding a revival. I walked into the trailer. I said, we're fixing the pasture. My wife said, how do you know? I said, because the grace to evangelize is starting to lift. <laughs> I'm not enjoying it as much as I was. And uh, when we left that revival, we went on a trip to Israel. And when I came back, um, I, I preached one more revival and took the church in Arroyo Grande, which was the second piano. I was there 12 and a half years and then we went to Rialto. And uh, now we've been there 25 years. I pastored 20 of those years and then uh, my son Joel again took over, so yeah. How do you feel like your leadership style developed between those three churches? Well, it actually, it was in the, the leadership style was in the dream because in the dream, when I sat down to the first piano and there were keys missing, but I don't know how to play the piano. And in the dream, I said, God, I don't know how to play. And I heard his voice and it was King James. <laughs> Seriously, it was, but it was just because he knew he could relate to me. He said, thou shalt play. And, and I didn't know what the anointing was, but man, it hit me. Is this this dream and I'm playing. I mean, I'm playing. Well, in the second dream, I was in a different, looked like a high school auditorium. Here was the, here was the uh, upright piano with all the keys. I sat down and I said, God, I don't know how to play. And he said, thou shalt play. And I felt it again and I started playing. Wow. Well, then I'm standing before this beautiful, long, black, grand piano. And I knew I couldn't play, but I knew he'd help me. And so I didn't say, Lord, I cannot play. And he didn't have to say, thou shalt play. I knew if I touched the keys, it would be okay. Mm -hmm. And I just put my hand on the keys and I felt the anointing hit me and I started playing. So I would say that the, the, the number one thing is confidence. By the time I got to Rialto, I had a far greater amount of confidence in God and what he would do. As for the first piano in the first church, they put, that church put far more into me, I think, than I put into it. I learned vast amounts. And then Roy Randy was the same. So they, it was, it, Life's a process. I hoped I helped those churches, but I know they helped me. I feel like your sermon delivery style is very visual. Are you a visual learner? No, I think that's a very good question. And, um, you know, I think we are all, we're visual learners. We hear from what we learn from what we hear. We learn from what we see. We learn from what we experience. Um, of course, everything we feel, etc., etc. In fact, I was holding a revival years and years ago for a patriarch. His name is Lehman Reynolds. And um, if you say his name in California, especially folks from some of my, everybody knew Lehman Reynolds. He was, he'd started eight churches. Well, I would preach and I'd walk down the aisles and this and that. And he, after about three or four days, he said, now, Brother Booker, uh, I never give an evangelist advice. He said, uh, but I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I said, well, sure. He said, when you preach, would you mind not walking down the aisles preaching? I said, well, absolutely. Uh, I said, I, I, I'm, uh, it's done. But I said, well, what is the reason? He said, the reason is 90% of your ministry is in your face. <laughs> and he said, the people, when you walk back down the aisles, the people that are in front of you, they can't see your face. And everybody's turning around because they're wanting to see your face because you're so visual. I said, I got it. 
And from that day, I mean, I would some, but I hardly ever walk down the aisles unless there's a real point I have to make. Do you feel like that is a tactic to get it more imprinted in their brain or you just think it's a because whenever you're preaching I find myself kind of engaged but I'm just kind of floating above like I see the garden of Eden and I see the watermelon and I'm just like wow like it's just it's a different concept than other ministers that I listen to so but it's very like I know I'm going to get a very visual sermon is that heavily purposeful or is that just what you like doing? You know, um, I, I, I lean that it's, uh, uh, I'm going to say, a God-given style that works for me. And, and what works for me, others don't need or whatever. Um, but I know this, there's an adage, people, I forget the percentages, but they, they, they uh, forget a certain percentage of what they read. They forget a certain percentage of what they hear. They even can forget a certain percentage of what they see. It's a shame I don't know those percentages. I used to. But they, people never forget what they feel. And when it comes to scripture, when it comes to Bible stories, and as much as God will help me, I want people, if we're talking about David, I want them to feel it. We're talking about Paul and Barnabas splitting up. I want them to feel that. It, it takes on uh, a powerful, uh, more powerful entity. And I'll never forget something Brother I.H. Terry told me one time. And he was, he was actually complimenting me. And Brother Terry did not always compliment me. <laughs> we had, I had a love-love relationship with him, and he loved me. Uh, but it, it was if he if he had a piece of his mind he had for me he would mind sharing and I loved him for it. But he was actually complimenting me one time on on telling stories and stuff. He said, Brother Booker, storytelling is a very powerful entity. He said, be preaching, be talking, look at the people. They're out there. Maybe they maybe it's a midweek. And they just get off work. Some of the men haven't even had a chance to go home and eat yet or something. And they're sitting there and they're just, you know, they're tired. They've worked hard. And you're teaching a Bible lesson and said, you'll notice if you, if you can sense or feel that you're starting to lose them. Just say, you know, that reminds me of a story and watch them perk up. Everybody loves a story. Everybody, and, and stories can be very powerful. Hence the parables. Right. Jesus used. I mean, he 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 would drive uh, points home with parables with a with a pile driver. I mean, it was wham, and um, and things that people could relate to. And of course, the stories of the Bible, on and on and on. That's why the Bible doesn't mind putting flesh and blood on its characters, and and you, you he wants you to delve into their personalities. He wants you to see them as as, as, as human as they were because we're human and we can relate to that. So, so anyway, he told me, he said, he said, keep the storytelling. And sometimes I would tell him a story. He was so funny. He would say, he would close his eyes. He'd say, tell me that again. So we might be driving or we might be in my front room or his front room. And then he'd sometimes say, he'd say one more time. He'd make me tell him a story three times so he could get it and absorb it. I'm so, complimented by what you said, by the way. Oh, Seriously, thank that you. touches me. I want to talk about cultivating a sermon and okay. specifically how you meditate on scripture before you get a seed thought. How do you personally read the Bible and how does it jump out at you as like elaborate on this or grow more into this detail? Well, there is a verse in Psalm 119 that I pray a lot and I've, I've prayed a lot. I prayed this a lot seriously for right at 50 years. When the first time I read it, I would hope it was the first time it may not have been, but it seems like it was, where David said, or whoever wrote Psalm 119, there's a good reasons to think that David 
man, be that as it may. He said, lighten mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And that grabbed me. And I, God only knows how many times I've prayed that. And many times, many, many times, probably the majority of the time before I began my Bible reading, I'll hold my Bible to my chest and I'll say, Jesus, lighten mine eyes that I can behold wondrous things out of your word. So I think preparation begins with that. And then in the course of reading, there may be um, developing a message is, it's a broad, wide subject. And, uh, you know, we're communicating right now. There's air going up my vocal cords and they're rattling and so there's air being, sound waves being pushed out. And then you've got these little hairs down in your ears that are vibrating and it's telling your brain what I'm saying. And so really just us communicating here is really quite the miracle. But there's a thousand ways to communicate. And so my wife and I have been married this January 20th, 50 years. When you've lived with somebody that long, they can communicate. I mean, my wife can communicate the way she puts a dish on the, on the table or, or the way she sets a drink down on the table. She can communicate volumes. <laughs> and uh, a raise of an eyebrow, slight smile, whatever, through the, through the years, all, all kinds of communications. And so it is with God. Okay? He mainly communicates through his word. With his spirit, he communicates through ministry and preaching and teaching. He can, you can be talking to a friend and you've got something on your mind and, it, and all of a sudden they just make a statement and things, the dominoes start falling, clickety click, 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 click. And, and it's like, you, you, you want to grab and say, I just heard from God through you. Your words just triggered something in me that I needed to hear. And God uses all of that. So the same way with messages. I was sitting in a restaurant one time looking up through a lot of pipes where the ceilings where the restaurant was made. And there was a sign up there that said, love is in the details. And I got what I feel means a lot to me, a message about his love is in the details. So I got that from reading the sign. Uh, hearing a phrase, reading a scripture, listening to a song, uh, a line in a book, uh, a stanza from a poem. There's so many things that God can trigger. So the longer you go in God, and my advice that I always give to young preachers, but especially there are just some young preachers that this isn't just general good advice and it's good advice for every single human being without question. But there are some young ministers that I, I have, I mean, it's been zeroed in. You need to, you need to submerge yourself in the word of God. You need to soak, or maybe a chapter you need to soak in, or a verse you need to soak in, but you need to be continually. You need, the scripture says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The more that people are immersed in their knowledge of the word of God, the richer church becomes, the richer almost any message becomes, because there's so much scripture in them some little quote of scripture in that. So they're not only hearing that sermon, they're getting stuff triggered left and right, just from having a knowledge of God. And uh, which, and when I came to God, uh, there was only one verse. There's 36,000 verses. There was only one verse I could quote. And, I, and then I had a hard time finding it in. That was John 3.16. So the book was totally un untrampled territory for me. And I met an old preacher one time and he gave me some of the best advice about that. 
the original question of how do you get messages, they can come from so many quarters and so many corners and so many. When I've said well, what I'm going to speak in the banquet tonight, some of what I'm going to speak, I've spoken on before, but I was sitting on the platform and I grabbed, I, I didn't have a piece of paper, so Pastor Holmes had a piece of paper that he had some instructions written on. I said, I hope this don't mess him up. I folded it over. The piece of nothing had been written on both sides, and I folded, folded the back, and then I tore it off. I said, I hope I don't mess it up. And I started making notes. And, and when I got to the room last night, I just went down those notes and putting it all into the computer with the Bible, Microsoft and everything. And, and so, but so when I'm given tonight, uh, I got it sitting on the platform last night. Well, the music was playing, and God's presence was there, so it. What advice do you have to someone who wants to start that journey of actually soaking and meditating in the word, but they just kind of find it a little confusing or challenging or hard to read? That's a very good question. And I made mention of the man, the elder man that helped me. That's, that's a perfect question. I'll be happy to tell you what this man did. Um, of course, I was new and I was reading the Bible. Uh, I felt kind of voraciously, but but I also I was so fascinated with. It. I just wanted to learn, so I would go. Didn't have much money at all, but I would go to Goodwill stores, Salvation Army stores, St. Vincent de Paul stores. I'd go to if I saw if I had time and I saw a garage sale, I would go and see if they had any books. I would go to all these places look for anything that had to do with Bible, scripture, religion, whatever. I remember this in the early 70s, nickel, dime, etc. If I spent a quarter for a book, that was a high price book. But I was buying them like crazy, like crazy. And I'd read a little here, read a little there. And so I was at a meeting in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. I'm young. And there was an old preacher named Henry Ivey, and he preached, and, and he was just a unique character. Well, he was sitting on the front row after church, and people were milling around. I was walking by, I was maybe four or five feet from him, walking past him. And he, he said, son, son, son. And then he said, come here, sit down by me. So I sat down. He said, have you read the Bible through? And by that time, I said, I think I have read all of the Bible. I mean, I, I think I, he said, no, no, no. Have you read it from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22? Yeah. Straight through. I said, mm, I don't know. I haven't. He said, okay. He said, start with Genesis 1-1 and read. He said, don't worry about understanding what's said. Don't worry about being able to pronounce a word you've read. Just read it. Just read it. He said, then you might want to do it twice. Just read it. And then he looked at me and he said, and all these books that you're buying, don't throw them away because there's probably a nugget or nuggets in every single one of them. But he said 99.9% of the books you're reading are from a, from a basic backdrop of the Trinity belief or, or Eastern religion belief or something. And said, so there's a lot of fish hooks in those books. And said, there's a lot of worms in those books. And you want the worms, but you don't want the hooks. If you read that Bible through twice, then you have given the Holy Ghost something to work so that when you're reading uh, one of those books and they make a statement, you say, wait, that don't quite sound right. And so the Holy Ghost can quicken a verse to you. And, and Or you may read it and think, I, I read that, but I don't think that's, and you can look it up. He said, it's a protection and it's what it's all about. He said, so you want the worms, but you don't want the fish hooks. Well, so I went to my pastor I said, Brother Moss, my Brother Ivy, did you by any chance talk to him about me? 
He said, about what? He said, well, I haven't, but, but about what? I said, well, you know, I've been buying lots of these books because you have. And I told him what he said. He said, Brother Booker, I never said a word to him that you have been meaningless. I said, okay. Well, so the next year, by the time he came back, the first time I was pretty newly married, and then he brought him back and saying that. Well, he told him, he said, that young man right there, while you're here, I want you to take him under your wing. He said, I, the hand of God's on him, and I want you to take him under your wing. Give him everything you've got that you feel you got you can. Well, he took me, so he took me to his little trailer. I've said this so many times to ministers, classes. And he took me to the back of his little, little trailer. And there was this tiny recliner. It wasn't tiny for him, but it was tiny for me. And there was a four foot tall bookshelf to the right and a four foot shelf, four foot tall bookshelf to the left. And there, there was Bible commentaries. There was Haley's Bible handbook, Young's Analytical, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Manners and Customs of the Bible, Cruden's commentary, it just, it just everything that you can fill on two bookshelves. And then he showed me, he brought out a piece of plywood that had a half circle cut out. And it had a, a deal on the back. He could prop it up. And it had a wood stob here. And then scattered out of these wood stobs. So he said he took out a Bible, set it down, Talked about studying horizontally, just reading through vertically. You get on a subject and you drill in that subject with its baptism every verse. He said, So if I read a verse, I'm reading a verse, and there's something about that verse I don't understand. I'll grab this book, I'll grab Strong's, I'll grab this. And I put them here and I open them up. Now, this is in the early 70s. You can do this on a computer today like that. But, and he said, I, I find out best I can. He said, then while I'm reading this, if I find a little statement here that triggers a thought, I'll pull out this book. So he said, by and by, I've got all these books out here. He said, and I will do this from 11 p.m. till 3 a.m. I don't miss a night. He said, how long have you been doing this? He said, 40 years. So 40 years every night from, from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. This man is, today we call that surfing the web. Yeah. He's, he was wading and swimming in theological, scriptural, spiritual waters. And that, I went home and I got a piece of plywood in that kind of circle and I put the wind stops on there. And, 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 I, and that's, I, I couldn't do it every Absolutely. <laughs> so other than the Bible, what books have revolutionized your life? I would have to say that next to the Bible history, um, I, I love history. And you know, God just knows what he's doing. When I was in high school, in my senior year, again, I had a D minus. Uh, I had straight A's when I was young, but I, I would go to class, I'd lay my head down on the table. I went into class, it was the beginning of the year, and there was a teacher named Mr. Miller. It was a history class. I laid my head down and he just got up and he started talking. He was an old man, probably 55. <laughs> and I thought he was ancient of days, but he gripped me. And I couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And the bottom line of that first conversation was, he said, if you will not give me problems, I will stand here and I will talk. I may use the chalkboard once in a while, but I will tell you history. If you give me a hard time, and he held up the history book, he said, this dull 
boring, in many ways, not totally factual book. You will read and I will test you out of what's written there. And that's how we'll do it. But if you don't give me a hard time, I will tell you, he captivated me. And that man, he, that year that, that he made, I fell in love with history because of that man. So years later, in fact, it was maybe 10, 12 years ago, maybe more, 15. Um, I went back to South High School in Pueblo. In those years, before all the shootings, and you could, you got permission to walk around and people let you. And there was only one teacher left that had been there when I was a student. And, and I didn't like the teacher when he was there. And I looked in and I remembered why. <laughs> that's, just this, that's just the deal. But I went to the office, back to the office. I said, is, is the old gray fox still alive? Is Mr. Miller still alive? They knew exactly what I was talking about. I didn't know that. They said, yes. I said, is there any way I can get a hold of you? They said, that's against school policy. And I began to tell them my story. What I was, how messed up I was. What I am now, I'm a minister, pastor of church. And I said, Mr. Miller made me fall in love with history. And I, I, I draw from it all the time. While I'm talking, there's one secretary who used to wait. I could see her in the office with the phone to her ear. She wrote something down. She come back. And then said, I said, she said, I'm sorry. I said, okay. And she stepped away, she pushed a piece of paper my way, and she said, you actually better go today. And it was his address. Well, it was only two blocks from the high school. When I got there, there was a lady that came right out on the porch, an old lady. And she said, are you Larry? I said, yes, he goes, come on in. And she said, you really got here at the right time. He has just the first uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's. He's been diagnosed with it, but you got here in time. And we sat down, said he knew who I was, and I, well, I started explaining it. And I, when I was, I was telling him the f impact he had on my life, how I fell in love with history, I'm a preacher now, and the Bible and history more than anything. And before it was over, we all three were crying. And I hugged him and thanked him. And on the way out, she said, you'll never know. I said, are there other students that come back? She said, every once in a great, great while. I said, this was the best. Yeah. So, yeah, so history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a thousand more questions, but we do have something to do after this. So I just want to ask you one final question. Absolutely. I really like to know this um, with all my guest hosts that join me on the podcast. So excluding Jesus Christ, because everyone wants to spend time with him. Yes. But if you could take three individuals from the Bible out to dinner, where are you taking them and why? That's a fabulous question. Uh, I can tell you the three. First is David. Second is the Apostle Paul. And if I had, if they were standing both before me, I'd probably lean towards taking Moses. But I, I know if I was with Moses, I would regret not picking Jeremiah. But if I was with Jeremiah, I'd probably be thinking, man, I should have talked to Moses. <laughs> so, and uh, except for Paul, I'd probably take him to a Jewish restaurant. <laughs> Paul, Paul would probably like pizza. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and because uh, you, you think about it, uh, the reason I was so quick to answer that is because I've thought about, okay, in your, in your order when you get to heaven, and we all have friends and loved ones,
stuff. But after that, it looks like we're going to have some time. Right. And uh, who would it be? So that's that's why it was pretty easy to pick those out. Paul was one of mine earlier uh, in the podcast when I started asking this question because I feel like we have the same personality. I feel like Paul's writings would be similar to mine if I ever put anything out there to that magnitude. Paul was like, I'm scum and I'm better than all of you. <laughs> so I really, <laughs> I enjoy Paul. Uh, but lately I've been studying Joseph quite a bit. And I think I would like to talk to Joseph the King. Um, and just kind of see what his mindset was when he was in those low places. I really want to know how he navigated the almost isolation feeling of the pit and the prison and saying, hey, I'm this great thing and everyone knows it, but it's not being like acted upon. There's no follow through for over two decades by the time he actually gets called to be what he's supposed to be i just want to ask him like how he navigated going through such loneliness because i feel like our lives are kind of parallel in that season for me right now but joseph was one and job i don't know what it is about the men that are like experiencing loneliness and i'm on a self-discovery faith journey so it's just kind of hard to get away from that but I really want to know what was going through Job's head because he had all these things and his attitude was so positive I just I'm like how do you do it I can barely get through 9 a.m without having a bad attitude (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I would say today my three would probably be I've always been a fan of Mary the mother of Jesus because just to have that favor living her own life I would love to sit with her woman to woman and just say what were you doing what was your routine what how did you live your days to have such favor in the eyes of God I think I would ask them all the same question how they were navigating life but Mary the mother of Jesus Job and Joseph those are probably my my three right now could be different That's tomorrow. A good three. Yeah. That'd be highly informative. Yeah. Highly informative. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, Sister Anissa, it's been great. You're a great questioner. You have good, good questions. And God bless you. You're doing a great job. Wait, I'm sorry. Can you wait one more time? No, <laughs> now it's on recording, so I've got it you, forever. You are. Great question, and you're doing a great job. That's G-R-E-A-T job. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. God bless you so much. That's all for this episode of Almost Apostolic. If you enjoyed yourself, please do us a favor and leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And until then, thank you for listening.